everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're gonna be continuing the Manchester tapes with the Smiths. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of craziness that surrounds them and it's quite a story, so strap in because we're gonna be diving right into it. Firstly, we're gonna be talking about the front band singer of the band, Morrissey. I'm sure everyone knows who Morrissey is. He was born Stephen Patrick Morrissey on May 22, 1959 in Davy Hume, Manchester. His parents, Elizabeth and Peter Morrissey, were Irish immigrants who immigrated from Dublin to Manchester with their first child, Jacqueline, a year before Morrissey was born. His early childhood house was a council house on 17 Harper Street in Hume, Inner Manchester. The infamous Moore's murders, which I'm not going to go into detail about, because it's quite a sad story. Basically, the gist of it was a couple in the Manchester area went around killing a lot of children, you know, like young kids and teenagers. It was just kind of a lot. Crazily enough, though, this deeply affected Morrissey because, yeah, of course, he lived in Manchester at this time where the Moores murders took place, and he was a young kid, so I would have no doubt that this gave him a lot of nightmares growing up. Later on in The Smiths, he would write the song Suffer Little Children, which is a callback to these Moore's murders. This song in particular would cause a lot of controversy later on when he would actually go on to make the song for The Smiths, but that's just a bit of a backstory there. After failing his 11 plus exams at St. Wilfred's Primary School, he went on to attend St. Mary's Technical Modern School, which he hated. He was not a fan of school at all. He was good at sports, but he was considered a loner to his peers. He kind of kept to himself. He was writing poetry. He was just a really quiet kid. He was not a people person. He would get bullied sometimes. He was a loner, and he stuck to himself. Unfortunately, after some bad experiences at school, he left in 1975 without having received a proper education. He did go to Stratford Technical College where he gained his three O levels in English Literature, Sociology, and General Paper. So after he left school in 1975, he traveled to the U.S. for a brief period of time to visit an aunt who lived in New Jersey. That is so random. I had no idea that he had any family in New Jersey. That is so weird. His parents had a tumultuous relationship ending in them separating in December of the following year, 76, where his dad eventually moved out of the family house. So he was living with his sister Jacqueline and his mother in Manchester. So while living with his mom and his sister, she encouraged Morrissey to read as his mom was a librarian. And so when you already have an interest in literature and poetry on your own, and then you have a mom that's a librarian and she encourages you to read, it kind of creates this environment where your life is just engulfed in these books and in these texts and in the literature and you can get lost in it. And I can definitely see how this really impacted his brain because, you know, you're just absorbing all of this information kind of like a sponge. And so I think that's really a turning point in his life. He took a big interest in feminist literature as well, and he came to love the works of Oscar Wilde, whom he would go on to idolize. His mom also was a vegetarian, and this prompted him to go vegetarian at about 11 years old. So he has very, very outspoken views on vegetarianism and animal rights, and he has a lot of outspoken views on a lot of things. 
but this vegetarianism would be a really prominent thing that he would talk about in his music and with the press. Obviously, they have an album called Meat is Murder. <laughs> so that's just kind of some context right there that he turned vegetarian at 11 years old because his mom was vegetarian. This is a really, really weird fact that I think is cool anyway that I had no idea about. So he was a big fan of the Manchester soap opera Coronation Street. And if you don't know about Coronation Street, it's basically a soap opera which looks at the kind of working class family in Manchester. It's just like a funny soap opera, you know. He actually wrote up proposed scripts for Coronation Street, and he sent them out to the studio executives at Granada Television, but they were all rejected. So sorry, Morrissey, none of your scripts got onto Coronation Street. How funny would that have been if they had accepted a script? You see, like, in the credits, written by <laughs> Morrissey. <laughs> that's kind of funny, but yeah, so that's a little side fact. He'll go on to write a lot of things at this time, like a lot of essays and books and things like that, so this is just one of those things. As well as having a really strong taste for English literature, he also liked plays and he also liked film a lot. He really liked the play A Taste of Honey, and particularly the 1961 film adaptation of that play. He would go on to use this as an influence on a lot of the Smiths tunes that he would write. A quote that he said on music and his youth was, Pop music was all I ever had and it was completely entwined with the image of the pop star. I remember feeling the person singing was actually with me and understood me in my predicament. And I think that's how a lot of kids would feel about music too is music has this way of just speaking to your soul that not a lot of other things could could do like there's always a song and there's always a singer that follows your predicament at all times kind of throughout your life and so when you're young you really gravitate towards music because it's accessible you can just play the song on repeat so I definitely can agree with that quote for sure. Morrissey has said that the first record he purchased was Marianne Faithful's 1964 single, Come and Stay With Me. Marianne Faithful is the girlfriend, or was the girlfriend, of Mick Jagger, um, if you don't know. He also became a really big fan of glam rock artists like David Bowie, T-Rex, the New York Dolls, which would be a huge influence in particular, and he liked Roxy music as well. But yeah, the New York Dolls was like his ultimate jam. He formed, actually, a British fan club for the New York Dolls, gathering members via ads in the back of pages of music magazines. It was through the New York Dolls that he began an appreciation for female pop singers like Dusty Springfield, Sandy Shaw, and Twinkle. And Sandy Shaw would also be a really big influence to him on his music as well. So after he left college, he worked on a series of odd jobs around the town, he was a clerk at one point for the civil service, and he was a salesperson at a record store, but briefly, he wasn't there for very long, and he had other jobs before quitting and claiming unemployment benefits, so yeah, Morrissey, collect that check. He spent most of the money that he earned through these jobs on concerts, of course, what young person wouldn't. He attended the shows of the Talking Heads, the Ramones, and Blondie, and he had a particular interest in the alternative and post-punk music scenes. So, he ended up meeting Billy Duffy, who is the guitarist of the cult. He would be the guitarist of the cult. He met Billy in November of 1977. Morrissey agreed to be the singer of Billy's then-band called The Nosebleeds. 
He wrote a few songs for the band, and they played a few gigs as supporting acts, but eventually they broke up, like most bands do at the time. Morrissey followed Billy, though, and both of them joined the band called Slaughter and the Dogs. So Slaughter and the Dogs recorded four songs and tried to land a record deal with these songs. When the record deal fell through, though, Morrissey left, and they became known as Studio Sweethearts. So at this time, he was just kind of trying to find his way throughout bands in Manchester at this time. He became actually somewhat of a minor punk figure in the city. At this point, he was kind of somewhat gaining his sea legs, if you will, for music because he was so shy and quiet in school. This was a way to help him branch out. So he was kind of growing his wings and kind of getting the feel for what it was like to be in a band. He eventually befriended Linda Sterling, the frontwoman of the punk jazz Manchester band Lotus, and through his friendship with Linda, he became acquainted with frontman Howard DeVoto of the Buzzcocks. The Buzzcocks is a major punk band at the time, so that's major that he ended up being friends with Howard DeVoto. And he became friends with their manager, Richard Boone, as well. So there you go. He's already implementing his way into the music scene by befriending these people. He had a short period of time where he wanted to be a music journalist. He would write letters to the music press, just kind of asking them to hire him so he could write music publications. He was eventually hired by the music review publication called Record Mirror. He wrote a few short books as well for the local publishing company, Babylon Books. And with Babylon Books, in 1981, he wrote a 24-page booklet on the New York Dolls that sold 3,000 copies. That's kind of crazy. I would say that's a good percentage of the Manchester population at the time. I don't know. A decent chunk, I would say, that it's quite niche, too. He wrote about the New York Dolls and that sold 3,000 copies. But that will go on to be a big point that I'm going to mention later when he would meet Johnny Marr. That's how they kind of became really well acquainted through this booklet that he would write. So that's kind of fascinating. He also wrote a book about James Dean, who he idolized. Like, James Dean was one of his favorite people ever. He wrote the book about James Dean called James Dean is Not Dead. So there you go. A little bit of a fun fact. Morrissey was a writer. He was a published author. And uh, yeah, that stems back from his love of literature from a young age. So that was Morrissey's backstory. And now we're going to go on to Johnny Marr's backstory because Morrissey and Johnny Marr are definitely the two leaders of the Smiths. And so I wanted to balance it out by having Morrissey and Johnny Marr's backstory. So Johnny was born John Martin Marr on October 31st, 1963. He was a Halloween baby, which is cool. I know that in England, you don't celebrate Halloween, but I like the fact that he was born on Halloween in my terms, okay? <laughs> um, he was born in Ardwick, Manchester. His parents, John Joseph Marr and Francis Patricia Doyle, were also Irish immigrants from Athy County, Kildare, Ireland. I hope I said that right. Also, I'm probably going to say a lot of things wrong because I'm not English. I'm American, so I'm trying my best. So the family ended up moving to Withenshaw in 1972. From 1975, he went to St. Augustine's Catholic Grammar School. He actually had really big dreams of being a football player. So sports were very highly ingrained in the English youth, as they still are. He was actually approached by Nottingham Forest Football Club and had trial runs with Manchester City. That's huge because Man City is a big football club 
football team, rather, in Manchester along with Man United. So he had trials with Manchester City. You could have seen him play football instead of play guitar. How would that have been? That would have been weird, wouldn't it? I can't imagine him being a football player, but that's just a funny little story there. So when he and his family moved at about age 13 to another part of Manchester, in this neighborhood, he ended up meeting and befriending some guitar players that would change his life. And one of these people was Billy Duffy of the cult. So now we have a mutual acquaintance between Johnny Marr and Morrissey is Billy Duffy, right? So Billy at the time was in a band, right, that I mentioned before. And they practiced across the street from Johnny's house, where actually Johnny would hang out and listen to them rehearsing. So Johnny learned how to play the guitar primarily from vinyl records and a guitar chords dictionary on his own. He had no teacher. He had no professional teaching. He did it all on his own. He would just listen to records over and over and try to pick it up from ear. And then he also had that guitar chords dictionary that he would just kind of mimic on his own. So there you go. You can do just about anything on your own if you're self-taught. So Johnny Marr formed his first band called the Paris Valentinos at age 13 with Andy Rourke, who would go on to be in the Smiths, and Kevin Williams. Andy had actually went to the same school as Billy, so you could kind of infer from that that Andy was friends with Billy, Billy was friends with Johnny, and that's how that mutual interaction came about. Kevin, funny enough, the connections are so crazy in the story. Kevin would later go on to go by the name Kevin Kennedy, and he would switch up being from music. He would go into acting, and he landed a major role in Coronation Street. So that's just another big like coincidence, is it not, that Morrissey would write scripts for Coronation Street, send them in to Granada Television. It's just, it, like, it's just crazy, honestly. The connections are mind-blowing to me. So as the Paris Valentinos, they performed for the first time at a Jubilee party in June of 1977. They played some Rolling Stones and Thin Lizzy covers. And then on August 31st, the following year, 1978, a 19-year-old Morrissey briefly met the then 14-year-old Johnny Marr and was introduced by their mutual acquaintance, Billy Duffy, at a Patti Smith concert at Manchester's Apollo Theatre. So they briefly met. They weren't like having a deep conversation like they would later. This was just like a brief encounter. In 1979, Johnny played one show at Withenshaw Forum, joining forces again with Andy Rourke in a newly formed band called White Dice. So as White Dice, they made a demo tape and they actually sent into a competition run by NME where you could send in your demo tape. And if you got chosen, you could get possibly a record contract so they had won this audition with F-Beat Records in April of 1980, but they weren't signed. It was around this time that he had went by going by the name of Mar to make it easier for people who had trouble pronouncing his last name because it was spelled, it wasn't spelled M-A-R-R, it was spelled M-A-H-E-R. So I could totally see how people would have trouble pronouncing his last name. So he went from being Johnny to Mar. In October of 1980, he went to Withenshaw College. White Dice eventually disbanded in 1981. But Johnny and Andy formed a funk band called Freak Party with Simon Wollstonecroft on drums. And so this is also a callback to my Stone Roses episode because Simon would go on to play drums for Freak Party, but he would decline to be in the band when they eventually formed the Smiths because he apparently has stated he didn't like Morrissey's voice. 
And I would think that that could be true. But um, from a very reliable source, I have also heard that Simon didn't want to be in the Smiths because Morrissey had the song Suffer Little Children. That was about the Moore's murders, and Simon didn't want to be a part of that. So either way, he left. And he went back to join forces with Ian Brown and John Squire for the Stone Roses. So that's just kind of the backstory about Morrissey and Johnny Marr. Now we're getting on to the formation of what would be known as the Smiths. By May of 1982, Freak Party had disbanded. Johnny wanted to start up a new band, and he asked the white guy singer Rob Allman for suggestions. And Rob recommended Morrissey. So now we're getting into the really cool story where Johnny and Morrissey meet up at Morrissey's house, and they have a nice kind of time getting to know each other. So the story goes... Johnny went over to Morrissey's house at 384 Kings Road in Stratford with a mutual friend, Steve Pomfrey, or Steve Pomfret. And he asked Morrissey if he was interested in forming a band with him and Steve. Johnny said on this meeting with Morrissey that it's still really clear. It was a sunny day about one o'clock. There was no advance phone call or anything. I just knocked and he opened the door. As soon as the door opened, Pommy took two firm steps back which is one of the things that got me to talk so fast. It was just plain exuberance. So Morrissey invited Johnny into his house. They went up to Morrissey's bedroom. He was kind of looking around Morrissey's room, trying to figure him out. Morrissey and Johnny figured out that they both had shared interest in poetry and literature. And Johnny was also a big fan of the New York Dolls. And he was really impressed that Morrissey had written that book about them. So that comes into play again, full circle. So after spending the day talking to each other and finding out that they had a lot of similar interests, so Morrissey phoned up Johnny the next day and he said, all right, I'll be in your band. So some days later, they had a rehearsal session in Johnny's rented out attic room in Bowdoin. And they worked on a few songs like Don't Blow Your Own Horn, which they weren't really a fan of, so they scrapped that one. And then they had the tune The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Both songs were written by Morrissey and obviously Johnny was just strumming along. They recorded these tracks on Morrissey's, I think how you say this is T-E-A-C three-track cassette recorder or Teak, whatever. It's a three-track cassette recorder um, that they recorded those songs on. By the end of the summer 1982, Morrissey had come up with the band name officially as the Smiths. One iteration that they had was the Smiths family, but they weren't really keen on that, so they just left it as the Smiths. And Morrissey's statement on why he chose the name The Smiths was, It was the most ordinary name, and I thought it was time that the ordinary folk of the world showed their faces. It was also at this time that Morrissey would want to be known as Morrissey. He was just going by his name, Stephen. But he didn't like being called Stephen. He really wanted to be called Morrissey. Mar would often call him Maz or Mazer, which he also went by. So after some time, their friend, I'm just going to call him Pommy, I can't say his last name. Their friend Pommy left the band and he was replaced by bassist Dale Hibbert, who worked at Manchester's Decibel Studios, where Johnny had met him previously while making recordings for Freak Party. So one night at Decibel Studios, the band recorded their very first demo tape in August of 1982. So they brought back Simon Wollstonecroft because they didn't really have a drummer. So Simon would kind of come back sometimes to help them with the drums. So because Cy didn't want to officially join the Smiths, they looked for another drummer. They eventually recruited Mike Joyce. 
they eventually recruited Mike Joyce, who had a mutual friend with Johnny Marr, and who noted later on that he was under the influence of shrooms during his audition. So Mike was totally off his face when he was on that audition, and they were like, cool, let's have this guy in, shall we? So after recording this demo tape, Morrissey took the tape to Factory Records, but they weren't interested. I don't know why, maybe it just wasn't good enough for them. But in October of 1982, they had their first public appearance as the Smiths as a supporting act during a student music and fashion show at Manchester's The Ritz. Morrissey had arranged the fashion and aesthetic choices for the band's performance this night. Bassist Dale Hibbert was apparently really not impressed at all with this, apparently because he deemed it as a gay aesthetic. So one thing about Morrissey that has stuck throughout the dawn of time is that Morrissey comes across as very flamboyant. He likes his fashion. It's just kind of who he is. Dale was just not impressed at all. Morrissey and Johnny, though, apparently in turn weren't happy with his bass playing, so they gave him the boot. So they replaced him with Johnny's friend Andy Rourke, so Andy was brought back. In December of that year, 1982, they recorded their second demo tape at Drone Studios in Chortland-cum-Hardy. Oh, I probably did not say that right. They recorded the songs What Difference Does It Make, which would be on their debut album. They recorded as well Handsome Devil and Miserable Lie. This was used as their audition tape for EMI, but EMI turned them down, so everywhere they went, record companies were like, no, sorry, we don't want you, you're not good enough. But they didn't give up. They kept on going. They continued to practice at their rehearsal space at the upstairs of Portland Street Crazy Face Clothing Company, and this was a space which was secured by their manager, Joe Moss. So by the time that Christmas came around that year, they had created four new tracks, called These Things Take Time, What Do You See in Him, Genie, and A Matter of Opinion. By the following year, in January of 83, they performed in Manchester's Manhattan Club, or it's also known as Manhattan Sound. This was like a disco bar, if you will. This was in the basement of the disco bar that they played in. Morrissey really enjoyed performing at a lot of these gay clubs in Manchester. He didn't have a problem with it. I don't think any of the band had a problem with it. It was just a nice atmosphere to play their songs in. Their friend, James Maker, would go on to play the tambourine and dress as a go-go dancer for this performance, although this would be the last time that he would do it. James Maker also was doing a similar thing at their first show at the Ritz, so they brought him back again, but he's like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. In February, they played their third show at the Hacienda Club. So now, finally, they would get their break with a record label. Morrissey and Johnny went down to London to hand their demo tape over to Rough Trade Records. And Rough Trade, at the time, was considered a very independent record label. It wasn't like a major record label by any stretch of the means. Although they didn't agree to give them a record deal right away, they allowed them to release their single Hand in Glove. And this was released May of 1983, and it sold for the next 18 months. Although it sold well, it didn't land on the UK's top 40 chart, so it didn't really chart that well, but it at least sold well. The band had their second show in London around the same time at the University of London Union, and at the show was John Walters, who was the producer of John Peel's BBC Radio 1 show. After seeing the band perform, he invited the band to record a session for his radio program. 
So via this kind of recording session for Radio 1, this had secured them the media exposure that they really needed at the time, and it recorded their first interviews with NME and Sounds Magazine after this point. So the band agreed to sign a record deal with Rough Trade. Jeff Travis, who was the founder of Rough Trade, went up to their rehearsal space in Manchester to meet the rest of the band, where they then signed the contract. It's very well known that only Morrissey and Johnny signed the contract, though. The rest of the band didn't sign, but just Morrissey and Johnny did. That kind of will come up later in the really big royalties lawsuit that happens later on. But there you go. To produce their first album, Jeff brought in Troy Tate of the post-punk Scouse band The Teardrop Explodes to assist them with production. The album was at the time titled The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Jeff, unfortunately, just really wasn't happy with the album and the production, unfortunately, even though he brought in a production person to help them. He didn't like the production, so okay. But he asked the band to re-record it with new producer John Porter. So John Porter would pretty much be their main producer guy throughout most of their albums and most of the work that they would do later on. A few singles had been released in the album's wake. The very famous This Charming Man was released before their debut album came out, and then the single What Difference Does It Make also was released. This Charming Man went to number 25, and What Difference Does It Make went to number 12 on the UK singles chart. This started to create a bigger, dedicated fan base for the band before their debut album even came out and was even released and was even really a thought. So just some facts about This Charming Man that I really wanted to include because This Charming Man is a major tune by them. Morrissey took the line, a jumped up pantry boy who never knew his place, from the 1972 film of the play Sleuth starring Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine. So that's where that comes from. Morrissey takes a lot of inspiration from movies and books and plays and things like that. So that's just one example. Morrissey deliberately used archaic kind of language when composing the lyrics for This Charming Man. He uses phrases and words such as like hillside desolate, stitched to wear, handsome and charming. These words are kind of used to convey a more um, courtly kind of posh world than the mid-80s north of England. You know what I mean? Not pompous, but very posh. So a quote from Johnny on his guitar part for This Charming Man from Guitar Player Magazine in 1993 is, I'll try any trick. With the Smiths, I take this really loud Telecaster of mine, lay it on top of a Fender Twin Reverb with the vibrato on, and tune it to an open chord. Then I drop a knife with a metal handle on it, hitting random strings. I used it on This Charming Man, buried beneath about 15 tracks of guitar. It was the first record in which I used those high-life-sounding runs in thirds. People thought the main guitar part was a Rickenbacker, but it's really a 54 Telecaster. There are three tracks of acoustic, a backwards guitar with a really long reverb, and the effect of dropping knives on the guitar. That comes in at the end of the chorus. I can kind of understand what he means. That's really crazy. So the next time you listen, to this charming man, try to pick up those moments where he drops the knife on the guitar. That's kind of cool, actually. The band had actually secured their first appearance on the Top of the Pops November the 24th, 1983. A young Noel Gallagher in Manchester was watching that performance at home, being like, oh my god, I want to be Johnny Marr. So there you go, another connection. 
So now we're getting into the Smiths' debut album. They recorded the album with John Porter at Matrix Studios in London. After all of the re-recording, mixing, producing, etc., the album was finally finished. Upon listening to the album, though, Morrissey was just really not happy, saying that it wasn't good enough. But unfortunately, because the album had cost £6,000 to make, there was no going back. It was released on February 20th, 1984, and it debuted at number two on the UK Albums Chart. The album was followed by singles that weren't on the album, such as Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, which is another popular song of theirs, and William It Was Really Nothing, which featured How Soon Is Now on the B-side. So, some information about Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. Johnny wrote the music for this song in about an hour, after receiving a Red Gibson ES-355 guitar from record executive Seymour Stein on the premise that the Smiths would sign with Sire Records, who was an American record label, so Seymour bought him a guitar. And the first thing that he played on it was the riff to Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. It just kind of happened. It's in part, really, to this song that Morrissey gained the reputation for being known as permanently depressed, he spoke to the London Sunday Times in 2017, saying, Years ago, I sang a song called Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and it's like an old school uniform. People insist I wear it, but I'm not really that miserable. I'm not an unhappy person, not in the least. I'm certainly very surprised and very pleased to still be here. A diary entry from Morrissey when he was younger appears to act as actually the precursor to this song. He wrote in his diary, when I had no job, I could pinpoint my depression, but when I did get a job, I was still depressed. The title of this song was actually inspired by the Sandy Shaw song, Heaven Knows, I'm Missing Him Now. So there you go, just a little bit of information about that. Now, I want to talk to you guys about some information on how soon is now. This is probably one of the most interesting stories of how this uh, guitar riff came along. Everyone knows that famous guitar riff that just comes rushing in at the beginning of the tune and throughout the tune. It's just so iconic. So Johnny told Rolling Stone magazine that he set about composing a memorable introduction. He really wanted it to be almost as potent as Layla was. You know how when Layla starts, it's that by Eric Clapton and it's just so well known. He really wanted it to kind of resemble that. He says, when it plays in a pub or in a club, everyone knows what it is. So he wanted that impression right off the gate, that when you hear this song, you're like, oh my God, it's the Smiths, and it worked. Some initial inspiration for the guitar part came from a cover of the Credence Clearwater revival song, Run Through the Jungle, by the band The Gun Club. So they did a cover of that song, and Johnny was really impressed by that. So Seymour Stein of Sire Records had said that the song is like the stairway to heaven of the 80s. That's quite a comment, and I would probably agree because I know what he means. Yeah, it's very, very prominent of a tune. It definitely sticks with you in your mind. So Johnny Marr stated that How Soon Is Now was the Smiths' most enduring record. It's said to be about Morrissey's crippling shyness, and it has since become an anthem for the alienated and socially isolated. Which, yeah, like some of the lyrics in there, like, I'm human and I need to be loved just like everybody else does. Yeah, that makes sense how that could be an anthem for sure. So more information on how Johnny actually created the guitar part. He had a quote. 
I wanted it to be really, really tense and swampy all at the same time. Layering the slide part was what gave it that real tension. The tremolo effect came from laying down a regular rhythm part with a capo at the second fret on the Les Paul, then sending that out into the live room to the four Fender Twins. John was controlling the tremolo on two of them and I was controlling the other two. And whenever they went out of sync, we just had to stop the track and start all over again. It took eternity. So John recorded How Soon Is Now with Andy and Mike that July at London's Jam Studios. After a night out of celebrating the sessions for William, it was really nothing. And please, please, please let me get what I want. They had reconvened the following afternoon to record How Soon Is Now. John Porter was impressed by the basic riff that Johnny showed him, but felt that the song needed something else. Their discussion turned to the early recordings of Elvis Presley, and it turned into an impromptu jam session of his song, That's Alright Mama. You know that tune, That's Alright. So they kind of took inspiration for that guitar part from a lot of different things. Just some of the known inspirations for the guitar part came about in a few songs here. The Can song, I Want More, the Bo Diddley song, Mona, and the Hamilton Bohannon song, Disco Stomp, which I can totally see all of those being influences. If you listen to some of those parts in the songs, yeah, it definitely resonates for me. So the band members recall this session for How Soon Is Now as being accompanied by heavy marijuana use, <laughs> they were high as a kite. John Porter has said, we used to smoke dope from when we got out of bed to when we got back in bed. And then Johnny Marr said, you're from Manchester, you smoke weed till it comes out your ears, <laughs> which, yeah, I would probably think that's true. Mike had said that the band even replaced the studio's light bulbs with red ones to give that perfect ambiance for the recording of the tune. The studio version of the song that we hear today is actually in two takes that they recorded and they spliced them together. So basically they took different bits and pieces from both of the two takes that they did and they mashed them together. So Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now marks the beginning of their working relationship with Stephen Street. In April 26, 1984, they performed on the Top of the Pops again, but this time without Morrissey. Sandy Shaw was actually there and she took... Morrissey's place where she sang hand in glove with the band, which honestly, hearing a female voice over the Smiths sounds really, really good. If you want a bit of a different flavor profile for the Smiths, if you will, definitely check out that one. Sandy Shaw, Top of the Pops, 1984, hand in glove. So now we're getting into the big controversy over the song Suffer Little Children because obviously it's on the album. People are realizing that it's inspired by the Moore's murders. A grandfather of one of the victims of the Moore's murder spoke out against the song. He felt like they were trying to commercialize off of the murders. But after meeting with Morrissey, he had accepted that the song was just kind of an homage to the victims. And he understood that the band was exploring what the impact of the murders had on Manchester and on Morrissey at the time. Morrissey also formed a friendship with the mother of one of the victims as well. So... He was making good on the fact that he was just simply inspired by it and he had no ill will towards anybody about it. By the end of 1984, this marked the release of Hatful of Hollow, which is their, I think, most famous compilation album ever. It had singles, b-sides, and early recordings of some of their songs, and it reached number seven 
on the UK Albums Chart, where it remained for 46 weeks. And this is where they also put out How Soon Is Now. They put it on that compilation album, too. Because the single only went to number 24 in the UK charts, it just kind of cemented the fact that it is a popular tune, and they really did not do the right thing by this tune at all. It was rectified later, but at this time, unfortunately, the tune just, it didn't do that well at all. So now we're getting into their second album, Meat is Murder. After the release of their debut album, Morrissey and Johnny produced Meat is Murder pretty much on their own with help from their engineer, Stephen Street. They used Kirby Studios just outside of Liverpool to record the album. To build up the atmosphere on Meat is Murder, Morrissey actually provided Johnny and Stephen with his personal copies of BBC's sound effects records to take samples from. And obviously this album is a lot more straightforward in terms of his political views, including pro-vegetarianism and anti-corporal punishment. Morrissey at this time too was becoming a lot more comfortable speaking his mind and being vocal about the things that he stood for. So he would not shy away from talking about these things. And so Meat is Murder is definitely their more political album that they've come out with. Their sound on this album, too, was definitely a lot more experimental, with Johnny and Andy channeling more rockabilly and funk influence for sure. The album cover actually is a photo of Vietnam Marine Corporal Michael Nguyen. They changed the original wording on his helmet from Make Love Not War to Meat is Murder. So it was at this point in time that they re-released How Soon Is Now to be an official single. Finally, it got the recognition that it deserved. And so the album, Meat is Murder, was released on February 11th, 1985. This was their only studio album to reach number one on the UK charts. The single that followed Meat is Murder was Shakespeare's Sister, which went to number 26 on the UK singles chart. The band was featured on a program, too, called The Old Grey Whistle Test on BBC Two on February 12th, 1985. And this showcased some behind-the-scenes footage of the band working on the album, and an interview with Morrissey and Johnny was also on this program, and they were talking about the songs, talking about the album coming together. So it was really, honestly, an interesting little program that they did. Morrissey mentioned on the program that he wasn't getting a lot of credit for the fact that his lyrics are, in fact, mostly humorous, according to him, and that it's not all serious, which I could see how some of his lyrics would be kind of satirical or kind of humorous in tone, but also he's talking about some very serious political things and some very, you know, strong opinions of like, you know, pro-vegetarianism and animal rights and human rights and all these other things. And so part of it is serious, but I can see how he would say that some of it is also kind of humorous, like he's not taking things too seriously, but on the same token, he definitely is too. He also felt that pop music should be used to promote serious statements like those in the album anyway. So he feels like he needed to have this platform to talk about all of these things because otherwise, what was the point of them making music if it was not to, not to promote ideology, but just to make certain things more widely talked about, I suppose. So now we're getting on to their third album, The Queen is Dead. I think this one's probably my favorite out of the four that they've done. But during 1985, the band went on some UK and US tours while they were recording their third album. Most of the album was recorded in winter of 1985 at Jacob Studios in Farnham under the title Margaret on the Guillotine. So that was the working title of the album. 
Johnny was heavily influenced at this time by the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, and the Detroit Garage rock music scene, of all things. That's crazy. He was taking inspiration from a lot of different places. Johnny claims that the boy with a thorn in his side came so effortlessly. He wrote most of the music for that album, too. And Morrissey has gone on to say that this is his favorite Smith song. So a couple of other tunes from this, Frankly, Mr. Shankly, I Know It's Over, and the ever-popular There Is A Light That Never Goes Out were all written by Morrissey and Marr in what they called a marathon writing session at Johnny's house in the summer of 85 in Bowdoin. So good on them. They just were cranking out the tunes, and there you go. It's kind of crazy that a lot of these tunes that they wrote came so quickly to them. About the song A Boy With A Thorn In His Side, Morrissey said in an interview, that the thorn is the music industry and all these people who never believe what I said, tried to get rid of me, never played the records. So I think we've reached the stage where if they don't believe me now, will they ever believe me? So that's about a boy with a thorn in his side. Some information on Frankly Mr. Shankly. The lyrics of the song are about a displeased and unhappy employee penning a letter to his boss, Mr. Shankly, expressing his strong annoyance about how he's been treated by him at work. Though Morrissey has never really confirmed this, people speculate that the lyrics are a direct jive at Jeff Travis of Rough Trade because at this point in time they were struggling a lot with Rough Trade. In a 2011 interview with Mojo, Jeff confirmed that the line in the song which Morrissey sings about not realizing that Mr. Shankly wrote bloody awful poetry was referring to a poem that Jeff once wrote for Morrissey. In the same interview, Jeff also briefly talked about Morrissey's desire to leave Rough Trade and go somewhere else. So so Jeff seems pretty convinced that this song was written by Morrissey as a job to say, hey, I'm done with you. <laughs> I'm over you. I want to move on to another record label. So he seems pretty convinced. They created Frankly Mr. Shankly as a way to create the same vibe as the Sandy Shaw song, Puppet on a String. And what's really interesting, they actually wrote a postcard to Linda McCartney and they asked her if she could play piano on Frankly Mr. Shankly, but she politely declined. Can you imagine if she would have actually gone on to record piano for that tune? So now I want to get into There is a Light That Never Goes Out because this is probably their most, well, at least in my opinion, one of their most popular tunes. It definitely made a really big impact over in America when it came out. So I just kind of wanted to give some information on this tune. Morrissey said on the recording of this song, we did it at the start of the day. And then Johnny recalled to Enemy in 2011, it was an enjoyable 40 minutes when we all got together, one, two, three, four. It was the first time all four of us had heard what it sounded like. It was magical. Someone told me that if you listen with the volume really, really up, you can hear me shout, that was amazing, right at the end. Ooh, see, now you got to go back and listen to that now to see if you can find that Easter egg. Johnny also said about the song, I didn't realize that There Is A Light That Never Goes Out was going to be an anthem, but when we first played it, I thought it was the best song I'd ever heard. He also said that the intro was kind of ripped off from the Rolling Stones cover of Hitchhike by Marvin Gaye, which, in turn, had also been inspired by the Velvet Underground for the intro of There She Goes Again. So it all kind of comes together with all these different influences for the tune. The lyrics to the song were inspired by the New York Dolls song, Lonely Planet Boy. 
And that's about it for There's a Light That Never Goes Out. So their single, A Boy With a Thorn In His Side, was recorded in July of 1985, and they thought it was good enough to be released as a single, which it was, on September 23rd, and it made it to number 23 on the UK singles chart. There Is a Light was thought to be the contender for the lead single from the album, but it was passed over in favor of Big Mouth Strikes Again. So the band at this point in time were going through a legal dispute with Rough Trades, and this delayed the album coming out by nine months. The band was beginning to feel the stress of their touring and their recording schedule. The Queen is Dead was released on June 16, 1986, and it went to number two on the UK album charts. This became a really big international success, staying in the European album charts for 21 weeks, and it went to number 70 on the US Billboard 200, and it was eventually certified gold in 1990. So this album was huge for them. It gained them a really broader audience across the board in Europe, in America, just everywhere. As the story goes, it was said that Andy Rourke was fired from the band in early 1986 for his really strong heroin use. He apparently found a sticky note on the windshield of his car that read, Andy, you've left the Smiths. Goodbye and good luck, Morrissey. Morrissey denies that that happened, but that's what Andy says, so believe who you want to believe. It has been known, though, in the band and throughout his life that Morrissey likes to keep a very tidy, kind of clean image, not only for the band itself, but for him as well. Like, he's been known to say that he's celibate and he doesn't drink or do drugs, like nothing. He doesn't do any of that stuff. And so he really wanted to keep that kind of anti-rock and roll, like, drug, sex, rock and roll attitude out of the band. Like, that's not what the Smiths were about. Andy was eventually replaced by bassist Craig Gannon from the Scottish new wave band Aztec Camera. Craig apparently said that he wasn't a fan of the Smiths' music before he joined, but he knew a couple of their songs. He knew enough of them to be like, yeah, okay, I can figure this out. He and Johnny rehearsed together, mainly just kind of getting the guitar parts down and trying to collaborate together. When Andy was eventually well enough to return to the band, they did keep Craig, though, in the band as their second guitarist, and this was kind of now their five-piece. Some consider Craig the fifth member of the Smiths. Unfortunately, though, Craig's part in the band, at least in his eyes, would kind of go unnoticed, and he would be lumped into the royalties dispute that we're going to get into in just a very short time. So this lineup with the five guys, they recorded singles Panic and Asked, and these went to numbers 11 and 14 on the UK charts, and they also went on tour to tour the album in the UK. Andy eventually, though, was arrested on drug possession, and he was nearly replaced by Guy Pratt for the band's North America tour, but it just so happens his work visa came through just in time before they were to leave for the US, so... He wasn't replaced, but he was really close to being replaced. While on these tours, the heavy drinking and the drug use really started to take a toll on the band, along with the lingering dispute with Rough Trades. So they were considering leaving Rough Trades for EMI, and the whole drinking and the drugs, it just became way too much, and Morrissey was the only one not doing any of this, and so he was just really not happy that this was going on, and it just became kind of too much. So this is kind of where the beginning of the end starts for the band, if you will. 
On December 12, 1986, the band performed their last concert at the Brixton Academy in London. Finally, finally, after severing ties with Rough Trade, they did eventually sign with EMI. And fans were criticizing them on this move because, again, Rough Trades was considered kind of an independent label and EMI was a major recording label. So their fans felt kind of betrayed that they would go with a corporate label, but what can you do? That's what they did. So now we're getting on to their fourth and final album, Strange Ways. In January 1987, the band released their single Shoplifters of the World Unite, which went to number two on the UK singles charts. During a 1987 interview with Sean Duggan, Morrissey said of that song, It doesn't literally mean picking up a loaf of bread or a watch and sticking it in your coat pocket. It's more or less spiritual shoplifting, cultural shoplifting, taking things and using them for your own advantage. And musically, the song has a resemblance to the T-Rex song, Children of the Revolution. So that's where the inspiration for that tune came from. Before Strange Ways was even released, they had a second compilation album called The World Won't Listen, which was released on February 23rd, 1987. The title for that came from Morrissey's frustrations with the band not getting enough mainstream recognition. It did go to number two on the UK charts, which is really good for a compilation album. They then went on to release their third compilation album called Louder Than Bombs. This was released in March of 1987. This was mainly for their American markets. This was released on Sire Records, which is their American label. It had most of the same material from The World Won't Listen on it with the addition of their newly released single, Sheila Take a Bow, which would be released in April of that year. And it had a couple of songs from Hatful of Hollow, so the third one was mainly just for their American audience. Now getting into the recording of Strange Ways, the band went into the Woolhall Studios and Beckington Somerset to record their fourth and last album. In June, Johnny took a break from the band going on a bit of a holiday. He thought that his break from the band was taken negatively by the other members. In July though, he had officially left the group because he believed that an enemy article that was titled Smiths to Split was planted by Morrissey. Basically, the article stated that Morrissey didn't like Johnny working with other musicians and that their working relationship had reached its breaking point. People aren't really sure if Morrissey actually planted the article because he just felt that the break was imminent and he just put it out there, or if it was someone else within the group, we don't really know, but it's just speculated that Morrissey was the one to put out the article. Johnny went as far as contacting Enemy to put his side of the story out there, saying that he hadn't left the band due to personal reasons, but because he wanted to actually broaden his musical horizons. So that was actually why he wanted to leave. This album, too, is the only one to feature Morrissey playing a musical instrument. He plays the piano on the song Death of a Disco Dancer. So that's kind of cool. So this whole thing with Johnny wanted to broaden his musical horizons, he felt like the band should go in a bit of a different musical direction and step away from the jingle jangle sound that they had kept putting out there in their music. He most notably looked for inspiration from the Beatles' White Album, and yeah, this is the album that's most notably used for a lot of musicians to grab a lot of different experimental stuff from and inspiration from when they want to change their sound. 
So Johnny was more so on the side of let's change up our music. We've been doing the same thing for too long. Let's just keep changing. And Morrissey was like, no, no, no. Let's just keep doing the same stuff. It works kind of thing. So that's where a lot of the clashing came from. The instrumentation on some of the tunes on this album added new elements to the album, like a synthesized saxophone was used, some string arrangements on keyboards was also used, and an electric drum machine that housed different percussion sounds on it was also used. Even though there was a lot of tensions within the band at this time, the recording sessions were surprisingly more relaxed, mainly because in the studio there was a wine cellar in the basement which was fully stocked. And let me tell you, the band used that to their fullest potential every single night. So as these sessions would go on really late into the night, the crew would wait until Morrissey went to bed. Because again, Morrissey didn't drink, do drugs, nothing. So he would say, all right, good night, guys. He would go to bed. They're like, all right, let's crack open these wine bottles. And so they all just were drinking throughout the night. They were just listening to the tunes that they had recorded while drinking wine and they were mixing and overdubbing and stuff like they were full on partying at these recording sessions. And let me tell you, honestly, it was kind of fun for them. It was said that these drinking parties at the Wool Hall became a nightly thing. So again, like they would wait for Morrissey to go to bed. They would be like, is he in bed? Like, is he fully asleep before we break open these bottles of wine? Okay, cool. And funny enough, it's just, oh my God, this is such a story. Sometimes they would be singing their favorite Spinal Tap songs into the early morning hours. It seems across the board that everyone in the band agrees that this is their band's best work. The album cover was chosen by Morrissey. It's a close-up shot of American actor Richard Davalos. The photo of Richard Davalos was not actually the first choice for the cover. Morrissey initially thought of using a photo of Harvey Keitel in the Scorsese film I Call First, it's also known as Who's That Knocking At My Door? But Harvey declined the use of his photo to be on the cover, so they used the Davalos picture instead. And Strange Ways was released on September 28, 1987. It went to number two on the UK album chart and 55 on the US Billboard 200. So this was an even bigger hit in the US. Unfortunately, though, by the time that the album was already released, the band had already broken up behind the scenes. It mostly came down to Morrissey and Johnny being frustrated with each other. They just eventually called it quits. Even though the album went to the top of the charts, the album upon its release didn't do much, though, because they couldn't tour the album. So unfortunately, the fans couldn't really get to see the band live performing the album and having the album get the hype that it deserved. They recorded two final songs in May that were released to provide b-sides for their album's main single, Girlfriend in a Coma, and then in 1988, the band's first and only live album, Rank, was released. It went to number two on the UK charts, and it was released via Rough Trades and Sire Records. And that's where the Smiths are fully done. They are done. They want nothing to do with each other. They go their separate ways for a very long time. However, now we're getting into, I think, the biggest portion of this episode, the royalties dispute. This is really deep. It's a mind-blowing story. You guys, this is crazy. So get ready for this. So I'm going to try to present this information as clearly and concisely as I can because there's a lot of like 
legal lawyer type of jargon that I didn't want to use in this. I read up on the case files and stuff and it's kind of just crazy, so I kept it really condensed. But basically, so the royalties dispute initially started in March of 1996. Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce filed a joint lawsuit against Johnny Marr and Morrissey. The basis for this lawsuit was that the band's royalties were divided in such a way. Morrissey and Johnny each got 40%. So Morrissey got 40, Johnny got 40. And then Mike and Andy each got 10%. So it was 40, 40, 10, 10. Mike's lawyer states that Andy and Mike were treated as seasoned musicians, meaning that they were easily replaceable, quote, as the parts of a lawnmower. So basically, it was seen that Andy and Mike were just very easily replaceable musicians, and they didn't contribute much to the band, and it was all Morrissey and Johnny taking the percentage, and they thought that was not fair. Andy and Mike argued in their lawsuit that they were just as equal as the rest of the group, and they wanted 25% each of the band's profits on all activities other than songwriting and publishing. So basically, with them wanting 25%, that would mean that it would be equal among the four of them. Andy was apparently broke at this time, and before the lawsuit even really gets off the ground, he settles out of court almost immediately for a payout of 83,000 pounds, and he kept his 10% royalties, and he took back all further claims that he ever made against the band. So Andy just frustrates me on this one because he literally just settled. He crumbled. He crumbled because he was broke. He saw the money. He's like, cool. So what was the point of you fighting for your 25% and your back payment and royalties if you were to just leave right before it even begins? That just, that frustrates me and it frustrates Mike to the point that they wouldn't speak to each other for nearly two years after the court case. Apparently, Mike was supposed to be Andy's best man at Andy's wedding, but he didn't go because he was pissed that Andy just crumbled like he was that easily persuaded. But Mike pursued on with the lawsuit. And this is where Craig Gannon comes into. Craig at this time also sues the Smiths over his involvement with the songwriting process for the song Ask in particular because he apparently wrote some of the lyrics in this tune and he was looking for compensation. He is well settled out of court with the sum of $48,000 for that tune. So there he goes. He gets his money and he tramples off. So again, Mike is the one that really pushes through with this lawsuit, which reaches the High Court of Justice in December of 96. This whole court case would be known as Joyce versus Morrissey and others, 1998. So now the meat and potatoes of this case is basically... Morrissey and Johnny agreed that Mike and Andy were equal partners, but whether they were entitled to 25% each was very contentious. Definitely, Mike's lawyer stated that Mike was unaware he was only getting 10% until after the split with the band. I don't know how you wouldn't be aware of what you were getting. Before I really researched all of this, I was like, how can you not know what you're getting from the band? And I thought, do they not have an accountant? Do they not have people looking after their finances? Does he not have an accountant? Like, how is he not aware of his finances? It just made no sense to me. A quote from Johnny's lawyer is, some 13 years on, it is extremely difficult to pinpoint the moment when the 40-40-10-10 profit split came into being. 
but Morrissey and Johnny acted throughout on the basis that they would be getting 40% each of the net profits from the Smiths' earnings. So Morrissey and Johnny were saying that they had numerous conversations with Andy and Mike throughout the years, throughout the span of the Smiths, that there would be that 40-40-10-10 split. And this is where I was saying earlier that Morrissey and Johnny were the ones that only signed that contract with Rough Trade Records initially, right? Because they were considered the main people in the bands, like the ones that were really going out there and promoting and getting the gigs and writing the songs and this, that, and the other. The other two, Andy and Mike, did not sign that contract, but it was very widely known that there was that 40-40-10-10 split throughout the whole entire Smith's being. So it was baffling to the two of them that Andy and Mike were saying that they weren't aware. After a week-long hearing, the judge presiding over the case, Judge Weeks, agreed in favor of Mike and ordered that Mike receive one million pounds in payback royalties and his 25% moving forward. So the judge agreed that Mike should be compensated and get his 25%, which that was just the outcome. What you think of it is what you think of it. It's kind of crazy that this all happened. Just, it's mind blowing to me. The judge also, weirdly enough, they gave them character assessments and IQ tests in this case as well. The judge found that Mike and Andy were deemed as straightforward and honest, which is, okay, especially with Andy's case. And he deemed that Morrissey appeared devious, truculent, and unreliable where his own interests were at stake. And he thought that Johnny was willing to embroider his evidence to a point where he became less credible. I don't know how that even comes to play, but... The IQ test found that Johnny was probably the more intelligent of the four. And get this, right? The IQ test deemed that Andy and Mike were unintellectual. I really don't know. It happened. That's just kind of what it is. That's basically the rundown of most of the meat and potatoes of that trial with what it entailed. Literally, like, it's been shown in the documents that they wrote, like, nine points of contention in which throughout... The whole span of the Smiths, they all brought up the 40-40-10-10 split. So they were all aware. And they did have an accountant who came in to make sure that everyone was aware of the split. And they were like, yep, 40-40-10-10. So for Mike and Andy to claim that they didn't know about the split or they weren't getting paid or something seems kind of strange. But that's basically what it is. Morrissey was asked sometime before the trial if he thought that Andy and Mike had been shortchanged. This is a burn right here. He says, They were lucky. If they'd had any other singer, they'd have never have gotten further than the Salford Shopping Center. Oh my God, a mic drop on that one. That is a burn. Wow, that's really tough. Morrissey appealed this verdict, which was heard by the Court of Appeals, but it was dismissed in November of 98. So Morrissey and Johnny had to pay Mike these back payments, and that went on for some time. What's absolutely as well so beyond crazy and stupid, after seeing the success of the lawsuit, Andy came back around and he was like, what are my options to sue them again? Like, Dude, you had the chance to sue them once. Now that you see the success and that your 83,000 pounds that you got did you nothing, now you want to try again? 
Um, yeah, I guess he sought legal counsel, but they were like, no, just don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, he declared bankruptcy in 1999. So, Andy, you got to get your shit together. In November of 2005, Mike was interviewed on BBC Radio 6 Music that due to the financial hardships, he has found himself selling rare recordings of the Smiths on eBay. I can't believe that. I mean, he is getting all this money, but yet he claims financial hardships. So much so that he has to sell rare recordings of the Smiths on eBay? You make of that what you will. I'm just leaving that fact out there. Morrissey responded to this interview saying Mike had received £215,000 each by Johnny and Morrissey, along with Johnny's final back payment of £260,000 in 2001. Apparently, Morrissey failed to make his last back payment because he was overseas in 2001 and didn't receive the paperwork. So... Because he failed to make this last payment, Mike obtained a default judgment against Morrissey. So a default judgment basically is given out in circumstances when one party of a lawsuit fails to perform a court-ordered action. So this default judgment was obtained against Morrissey because he failed to pay his last payment. And so Mike revised his claim to £688,000 and secured orders gaining much of Morrissey's income. So <laughs> Morrissey was just not happy with this. He's like, are you kidding me? The whole thing was so inconvenient to Morrissey, who claims that Mike had cost him at least £1,515,000 in required royalties and legal fees up to November 30th of 2005. To kind of close this royalties dispute, I wanted to leave a quote that Morrissey said in 1997 in an interview with Melody Maker. Morrissey said about this case, The court case was a potted history of the life of the Smiths. Mike talking constantly and saying nothing. Andy unable to remember his own name. Johnny trying to please everyone and consequently pleasing no one and Morrissey under the scorching spotlight in the dock being drilled. How dare you be successful? How dare you move on? To me, the Smiths were a beautiful thing and Johnny left it and Mike has destroyed it. But that, in a nutshell, is the intense royalties dispute that went on amongst the band. And let me tell you, they will, they will never reunite. They just won't ever do it. There will not be a Smiths reunion. That's coming just from me. But Morrissey and Johnny in the past um, have said it too, that there's like no way that they would do a reunion. Like that's just not happening. And obviously, because if you went to court with your friends who you had a band with and you sucked them out of their money and there's bad blood between everybody, it's just not going to happen. So that's where we leave it with the Smiths. But that is not the end because each member has also gone on to do things post-Smiths. Morrissey, after the breakup, collaborated with Stephen Street on an album with Manchester guitarist Vinnie Riley. This album was called Viva Hate and it was released on March 1998. It went to number one on the UK charts. That's crazy. And the first released single from the album Suedehead went to number five on the UK singles chart, which is higher than any of the Smith's singles had achieved. So in subsequent years, he collaborated with a number of artists on songs for his own music and their own music. 
And by the 90s, he went on his first American tour officially as a Morrissey. He went on to release 13 studio albums in total, his most recent being released in 2020 called I Am Not A Dog On A Chain. It's crazy that none of his solo albums went below number 10 in the UK charts. He actually had three number one albums. The first one, Viva Hate. The fourth album, uh, Vohal, and I, or Vauxhall, Vohal. I think that's Vohal. And his eighth album, Ringleader of the Tormentors. So good for him. I guess he's making music that people want to hear. So he is cranking out the tunes. Over the years, he's gone on to tour his solo albums as well as tour alongside big time musicians on the road. He did move to LA in the late 90s slash early 2000s and he's remained there ever since. He is just absolutely finished with the British life, the British politics, the British scene. He is done. He is like, LA is my home now. He released an autobiography called Autobiography. Can you believe it? (laughs) Well, and he actually underwent treatment for Barrett's esophageal cancer. There hasn't really been any update on that. It seems like he's fine now, but he underwent treatment for that. So that's kind of scary, but he seems to be doing fine health-wise. The most recent thing that I could find was as of November 2020, his deal with record label BMG expired and it wasn't renewed. So... As of now, there won't be any more music from Morrissey unless he goes to a new record label or he just does it on his own in the future, but Morrissey for now seems to just be chilling. The most recent thing that I could find that he was putting out was a 7-inch double A-side vinyl of his live June 1991 performance with David Bowie. The song that they did together is called Cosmic Dancer, so that's going to be released as a 7-inch vinyl. And that was on pre-order on February 2021 of this year. So I believe it's still up on the website if you want to get it. And then just a bit about Morrissey's background that I didn't fully include or fully talk about um, just to kind of give context to Morrissey because I feel like if I don't talk about these things, it would kind of be not a full well-rounded profile of who Morrissey is if you don't really know anything about him. So there's been rumors since day one about Morrissey's sexuality and people in the music press, the fans have been asking him, more so bombarding him to put a label on himself. Like, dude, are you straight? Are you gay? Are you bi? Like, what are you? He's made claims in the past in his life that he is bisexual, being attracted to both men and women. But he also says that he doesn't want to have a label put on himself. So... He's just said that he likes men and women, he likes humans, like he just doesn't care. He's definitely though had some dalliances with men and women in his life. It's not to be believed though that he had any serious committed relationships with anybody. He hasn't been married, none of that. It's just kind of been himself and a couple of maybe short-lived flings that he's had with people. He has actually fathered a child with a woman that he dated in the late 90s named Tina Degani, but that's as far as I could really see. So that's just kind of where Morrissey is. And obviously, like I mentioned, Morrissey is extremely vocal on his political views. He's online all the time talking smack about this, that, and the other with the British press and just everything. (laughs) He's very vocal about animal rights, human rights women's rights, a lot of political stuff in England, but just political stuff in general. Also, I should mention, people and the press have deemed him racist because of some remarks that he's made in the past. Morrissey denies those claims. He doesn't claim to be racist, but 
I just wanted to throw that in there because again, this is the profile of who Morrissey as a person is. He is a strange character with a lot of weird opinions on things, but I think we can all agree that as a musician, just looking as a musician and as a lyricist, he is very talented. So that's Morrissey. Now we're moving into Johnny's solo career after the Smiths. In 1989, Johnny went back with New Order's Bernard Sumner and Pet Shop Boy's Neil Tennant in the supergroup called Electronic. So they came together and they formed this band. They were mainly inspired by contemporary dance music like Italo House band Technotronic. They initially wanted to release white label records anonymously under factory records in Manchester due to their obviously big notoriety and big bands like New Order, The Smiths, Pet Shop Boys, they didn't want people to know that it was them putting out this music, at least initially. They just thought they would slip this music under the cover of darkness and that maybe people could possibly gather on, but that didn't last for too long. As Electronic, they released three albums. They released their self-titled in 1991, Raise the Pressure in 96, and Twisted Tenderness in 99. Their debut album went to number two on the UK charts. So then that's where that ended. He also worked with post-punk band The The, releasing two albums with them between 89 and 93. Johnny has worked with a lot of people, I should mention. He's just kind of found himself amongst all these random people that you wouldn't suspect him to collaborate with. He's also collaborated with Oasis on their Heathen Chemistry album. He's worked with Brian Ferry. He's worked with The Pretenders, The Talking Heads, etc., there is a really, really funny story about Johnny loaning Noel Gallagher two of his guitars that I am going to tell you guys about right now because it is quite funny. So the story goes that Johnny saw Oasis play in their early days before they got really big. They had become friends through a mutual friend of each other's. Johnny was talking to Noel one day and he pointed out that Noel needed a proper guitar as he saw that Noel was tuning it all the time on stage. Because Noel didn't just have the money to buy a new guitar, Johnny went through his guitar collection and he loaned Noel a Sunburst 1960 Gibson Les Paul that was once owned by Pete Townsend of The Who. He gives this to Noel Gallagher, who at this point is quite unknown. He's like, yeah, just have this one, you know, loan it. I'm going to loan it to you. And when you've got enough money to get yourself a proper guitar, then give it back. But Noel loved this guitar, and Johnny just didn't really have the heart to ask for it back. Almost like in the blink of an eye, Oasis blew up, and Noel started using this guitar as his main instrument. The guitar actually is featured on the Live Forever music video, and that's the guitar that he wrote the tune on as well. So if you go to look up the video for that, you can see the guitar in all its glory. So Johnny noted that sometime later at an Oasis gig at Newcastle Mayfair, the guitar got smashed because Noel whacked it over the head of someone that got up on stage and got in a brawl with Liam. So this prized guitar gets smashed and, you know, I'm assuming like their management or something rang up Johnny and they're like, yeah, you know that really famous Pete Townsend guitar that you so graciously lent Noel? Um, yeah, it's broken in a million pieces. Can you give him another one, please? So Johnny's like, ugh, okay, I guess. So he loaned him his black Les Paul that he wrote Big Mouth Strikes Again on. And what's really, really funny, Johnny Marr has a good sense of humor. He 
He passed this guitar along with a note that said, this time, if you swing the guitar, you'll actually take the fucker out. <laughs> so, so he's like, listen, if you swing, you're going to actually do some damage this time. This is foolproof. Like, you cannot break this one. So that was kind of that part of the story. It comes full circle when Johnny worked with Oasis on their Heathen Chemistry album. While at the mixing desk one day, their roadie, who was actually the same roadie, Johnny Marr had this roadie, and then Oasis got the same roadie. Um, That's pretty funny. So their roadie, Jason, handed Johnny back the black guitar that he had given Noel years before. And he used that same guitar on Heathen Chemistry, so it all comes full circle. I just think that that was a really funny story. Like, Noel... How can you break that guitar? It's worth, well, at the time it probably wasn't worth much, but now, oh my God, it would be worth so much money. But what can you do? In 2002, Johnny formed another band called Johnny Marr and the Healers. One of the prominent band members of this band was Zach Starkey, who was on drums, and he's Ringo Starr's son. So that's really cool. With this band, they released one album called Boomslang in 2003 to somewhat moderate success, and at this point, the band was kind of, like, shelved. In 2001, he joined the music supergroup Seven Worlds Collide. This project was put together by Crowded House member Neil Finn as a charity project. Members included in this project were from bands like Pearl Jam, Radiohead, Split Ends, and a lot more, and obviously Johnny Marr was a part of this. They had a set of gigs to raise money for charity, and then they eventually did come out with an album in 2009 called The Sun Came Out, which raised money for Oxfam, which is an organization designed to help end global poverty. Something that I found really weird and kind of shocking, he became a member of Modest Mouse. Now, I knew of Modest Mouse. I was kind of familiar with them around high school or, yeah, around high school. So to think that Johnny Marr was a part of Modest Mouse, it seems like a weird pairing, doesn't it not? It seems like, why would Johnny go for Modest Mouse? Um, He was helping them on some of their music and he just kind of fit in to the band, I guess. He was featured on their 2007 album, We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank. And this was the first time that Marr had a number one album in the U.S. charts with Modest Mouse. So there you go. Um, They did tour between 2006 and 2007 for this album before Johnny eventually just kind of left. He also worked with the band The Cribs for three years, which is another really weird fact. On his own, though, after all of this working with other bands, Johnny himself has come out with three of his own solo albums at this point in time. The first is The Messenger in 2013, Playland in 2014, and Call the Comets in 2018. As of recently, Johnny actually put out a new song called Spirit, Power, and Soul. He's apparently releasing a double LP, the first part of which is called Fever Dreams Part 1 EP. It's coming out on October 15th. You can pre-order it now if you want. I'm assuming at some point he'll put all of them together in one full package, But right now, he's just coming out with them in parts. And then I wanted to give a bit more of Johnny's personal life, a bit more of his background, again, to kind of give a more well-rounded presentation of the person that he is. He met his wife, Angie, when they were really young, and they've been together since 1979, long before the Smiths ever even happened. The two of them have two kids together, Sonny and Niall. Niall is also a musician, and he was part of a band called Man Made before he made his own solo album called Are You Happy Now, which came out last year in 2020. 
but that's cool. His son is an artist as well. Johnny gave up eating meat in 1985 in solidarity with Morrissey and his wife. He said, like rightly so, that it would be hypocritical to have an album called Meat is Murder and be seen there eating a bacon sandwich. So yeah, I could see how he'd be like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, let's, I should probably stop eating meat. What's really weird that I never saw coming too, he also said that after a meeting with the American rap group Naughty by Nature, which is so good, he was inspired by their philosophy and he quit drinking and smoking and went vegan like full stop. After that meeting with them, he just full-blown changed the course of his life and he's been that way ever since. So good for him. He seems like a really well-rounded person. I can't wait to hear more of his music that he's coming out with. That song, Spirit, Power, and Soul, is really good. And now we're going to talk about Andy and Mike after the Smiths. The two of them have kind of stuck together throughout the years. They've been working together, collaborating with a lot of musicians over the years on different kind of projects. Mike has kind of been more so silent in the music industry. He's just kind of been chilling. Andy is more the one to kind of go after, well... He's been kind of trying to chase, you know, bands and trying to get some kind of hold in the music industry. Andy has focused on his radio career, working with XFM Manchester on a Saturday evening show. I don't think he is anymore because he did move to New York in 2009. And he formed a band there called Jetlag. In 2014, the Cranberry singer Dolores actually joined the band and they changed their name to Dark, but they disbanded following her death in 2018. So to be honest, I don't really know where that even goes. Andy has just kind of been living a weird life since the Smiths. I think personally, Andy's been on the wrong side of things. Yeah, ultimately though, to see a Smiths reunion, I really don't think it's going to happen, you guys. I just can't see it happening. Can you? I don't see it happening at all. They'd have to put aside all of the beef. All of the beef from the royalties thing, all of the beef about the music stuff, like everything. I mean, never say never, but I just can't see it. I can see Oasis getting together faster than the Smiths can get together. And that's just my humble opinion. Whew, guys, we have finished the Smiths episode. This is for sure my longest episode I've ever done. I can't even imagine how long this episode is. Any of you that have listened to this whole entire thing, you guys are troopers. You guys are awesome. I hope that you learned something that you hadn't learned about before. Thank you very much for listening today. And I'll be coming out next Wednesday with a new episode of this Manchester series. So have an awesome day, everyone. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>